Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror, and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. I'm all nervous now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited. I'm excited for uh, I'm excited for Saturday. Are you? Yeah. Why Why are you so excited for Saturday? Well, okay, I'm going to tell you. All right, a few things. First of all, because we're doing a film board. Woohoo! Yeah, I know. Woohoo! Right, and it's going to be um, uh, Insurgent. Woohoo! Part two, and and I'm I'm calling the trilogy actually the the official the canonical trilogy is the next reels film board discussion of the Divergent trilogy. Divergent is merely source material, which we're adapting to have a podcast about. Okay. Do you feel me? Are you getting, are you hearing that? And here's why I'm so excited. I went back and listened to that episode to prepare, because why would I go back and actually watch Divergent to get ready for, (laughs) Uh, and so I went back to prepare and I realized that you and Steve and um, uh, Tom, and I'm going to say even Mike Evans were all bullies to me. Although Mike Evans, the least of which, and I'm so excited because we have a new voice that's going to be joining us on the show on Saturday, and he called me this voice, and he said, hey, I just listened to the show, and I wanted you to know you're not alone. I also agree with you on this particular point. Wow. Yeah, when you guys were particularly bullish. (laughs) So I feel like I'm like pre-vindicated. I'm going to have support. Is it pre-vindication or post-vindication? Both. It's both because it's post for for divergent. But I have a feeling that I will be revindicated. <laughs> Wait, now I've lost the thread. <laughs> I totally lost. You're going to be pre re post vindicated. Pre post vindicated. That's right. That's right. Neo vindication is what we call that. <laughs> so I'm very very excited. But even my daughter, she sees the trailer. She's like, "What is that movie about?" And she's read all the books. She's like, "That's not the book I read." Yeah, that's what I keep hearing. Yeah, it's yeah. not not looking good. No, I I will say, I mean, I enjoyed the first one, as I recall, but my memory of it has dwindled as time has worn on. To vapor. And, yeah, I, I asked my wife, I'm like, what was the first movie about? I don't even remember it. <laughs> don't, you rem- just, don't you remember the Dauntless? They jumped off the trains. Well, I remember like that, I, yeah. but I couldn't remember what the point was. That and is I'm the like, bigger so did, question. What happened at the end of it? And I like I really couldn't remember for the life of me what happened. And so she kind of filled me in a little bit. And, and remember they threw a knife at the computer and all the data got erased? I didn't remember that. I remember she and Kate Winslet had a fight. She did. But then I didn't remember past that. And I guess then they hopped on the train and they went outside the big city, right? To go live with the... the as far as we know, because that's, that's where it ended, right? They went to live with the country mice, the city the mice. Con- city mice. The, the country mice. <laughs> the country mice. <laughs> That's what happened. Exactly. Right. Yeah. No, you nailed it. I'm so looking forward to this. And is that, that's right where it ended, right? That's. I, as far did, as I remember. More? I don't remember. I really don't. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's going to matter too much. I, I have a feeling that my, I, I, honestly, I'm just, I'm now I'm prejudging. <laughs> 
<laughs> Wait, what was the along with your pre-vindication post? I, I I feel like I may be more on your side on this one because I feel less interested in the story now. Yes, truly, I feel like we're seeing this because we lost a bet. <laughs> Here's the thing: what was the movie where there was they they were working in a field that was in a like a cone or a cavern of some sort, and they could close up the the top of the cavern when bad guys came. Does that ring any bells to you? That wasn't in Divergent, was it? That doesn't sound like Divergent. I'm having No, these... because what happened was anyone who was like without one of the factions, they were factionless, and yeah. then they kicked them out of the city. Right. But I don't think that has anything to do with people living in cones. No, it was like it was like these this civilization had created this and I feel like this is a different this is a different movie that just really screams uh divergent, insurgent, astringent. <laughs> And so I, I, anyway, I can't wait to talk about it just because I really enjoy these conversations. There's, yeah. Um, do you have any, uh, did you have any good stories this week? No, I didn't have any good stories this week. It's been, it's been, uh, uh, it's been a a busy, I I actually plowed through a number of movies trying to catch up on some old stuff. I had one of those nights where I just couldn't sleep. And so I just kept watching movie after movie. Yeah. It was nice. So anything hot? I finally saw the man who shot Liberty Valance, and now I finally know who that man is. Oh. I feel I feel some reward in that. Good for you. I know. I know. No, that's and really I, positive. And then, and then I watched the uh, the French film Les Samurai. Oh, which uh, was actually quite good. I actually enjoyed it quite quite a bit. It was uh, Jean Pierre Melville's one of his kind of a French New Wave noirish sort of thing that he had going on. It's kind I, of fun. I haven't seen it. And then I started uh, watching the Star Wars series with my kids. Oh, what order? Four, five, one, two, three, six. That's the order we're doing it. Okay. I uh, I feel like is that that's the the nerd two o Star Wars two o nerd four five one two three six right? Correct. Okay. Uh, yeah. And and what is your experience with that so far? How far in are you? Uh, well, they're watching one tonight, and I don't feel so bad that I'm not with them. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that so, like a parenting movie fail when you start a series with your kids and say, okay, this one's a piece of crap, so I'm going to let you watch this alone. I think that's the best way to do it. <laughs> Perhaps the, yeah, the safest way. You technically, enjoy it. Technically, you, enjoy you could it. do four, five, two, three, six and pretend one just doesn't even exist. Yes, technically you could. But you know what? They're kids. They're going to enjoy all that yeah. goofiness in, in episode one. Yeah. I'm not too worried. It'll be easier showing them that one than you know trying to figure out how I'm going to get through episode three without uh, skipping scenes. Because I have a feeling I'm going to have to skip a few scenes in that one. Really? Oh, like the... Uh, like the massacre, Master, massacre of Master all the Annie. children. Master Annie, I'm a wee child. <laughs> yeah. Why tr- are you waving your lightsword at me? I trust ah! you. I trust you to take me to a nursery because I trust you as an adult and the Jedi. Oh, bad touch. <laughs> too far? <laughs> is that is, is that what it equates that to? Too far? <laughs> is that too far? <laughs> I haven't been sleeping uh enough. And that may come out. That may come out in the show. Uh, I don't have any other good stories. It's been a, a crazy week. I have snuck in some uh, old episodes of TV shows, but I have not seen any other movies, with the exception of the movie we watched or we watched for tonight's show. Mm-hmm. So I'm uh, I'm really uh, I'm not pulling my weight. Ah uh, well. So if you're ready, I think we should tell the people where we're from. 
Where are we from? This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey! And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the first in our 2015 film noir series with the 1944 Billy Wilder classic, Double Indemnity. But before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're ready to hit the bricks to roll around with the scum in the gutter, head over to Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag Stephen Lives in Scotland, not England, hashtag Pony Prize, hashtag Pete Should Totally Know Better Than That, hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. <laughs> what do you think? Was that a good enough make good? Did you? Was that your your uh, reparations? Yeah, I, I think so, they were made. I felt so bad. <laughs> Andy, how'd we do against the pack of pirates this week? Uh, you know, this was a pretty good week. Uh, it was Tamara Jenkins' uh, fantastic film, The Savages, uh, from 2007. That uh, it took a number of images. I think it was one, two, three, four, five. Was it six images? I believe it was six images. So almost nice. a full week went by before Alexander C. Curran figured it out. Well, I'm really glad you brought up that name. Ah, uh, yes. Can you tell me why? I've been thinking about old Alexander C. Curran. Man, he had a good week with our show this week, did he? Didn't I, he? I would say this has been a good week for him. Man, all right. So first he goes and he wins the Instagram. Well, actually, I should say first he crushed it within, I'm going to say, 12 hours of the last uh, last week's show uh, hitting the internets. He crushed it, winning our uh, mystery 2015 Guess the Series uh, mystery series connections mm-hmm. by pulling together... What uh, the four movies that we talked about, and we didn't tell you why we talked about them, but the four movies that we talked about uh, in reverse order, they were La Vion Rose, uh, L.A. Confidential. Um, yeah, I forgot, I forgot the first two. Oh, yeah. Million, Million Dollar, Dollar Baby. <laughs> Syriana. And Syriana. Those four movies all had some mysterious secret connection, and he came out of the gates fast. And nailed it in his second tweet to us uh, on that subject. And so uh, what was that connection, Andy? All of the films uh, won an Oscar for one of the actors in it. And that actor that won the Oscar in that particular film also had been in one of the Batman films. That's right. From Syriana, Morgan Freeman from Million Dollar Baby, Kim Basinger from LA Confidential, and of course, Marion Cotillard from La Vie en Rose. So I'm changing on our website. I'm changing the the series name from mystery series to cruel ironic joke. <laughs> uh, anyway, congratulations to Alexander C. Curran. Your prize is in the wind, my friend. It's on the way. Uh, there you go. Very exciting. And then he goes and he wins the the Instagram, the guest, the movie, uh, Stephen in Scotland thing. Yeah, I know. So once again, he's entered to win the 2015 Pony Prize. Uh, pretty soon we're going to have to give him a job. I think so. <laughs> uh, that's all. Uh, that's all I got, Andy. I think it's time for us to do the trailers. Mine, mine may not be as much fun as yours, so we'll, get, we'll just get it over with. 
No, I actually think it looks like a, a, a very uh, good dramatic comedy sort of film. It actually is billed as a comedy, but it looks like it has kind of that drama comedy element. It's called Ride, and it's written and directed and starring Helen Hunt, which uh, I think is quite interesting that she's uh, jumping up there and taking the mantle to uh, kind of head up her own film here. I think this is my, you know, she's actually directed a few uh, TV shows. She's directed, well, she had directed some of Mad About You back then, uh, Californication and Revenge, as well as a film from 2007 called Then She Found Me, which I, I'm you familiar with that at all. No, I no, I never even heard of it. No, it's a comedy drama romance. I completely missed that one. Anyway, this film that she is doing, uh, Ride, is about a, a mother who uh, looks to be a little bit um, kind of a control freak, very much what you'd call kind of a helicopter parent, even though her son is now, uh, looks like off in college. And uh, she kind of tracks him down, goes across country to see what he's up to, finds out he dropped out of school to basically be a hippie surfer. And she kind of freaks out about that. And then she kind of decides to make a change in her own life and uh, and kind of follow suit and kind of become a surfer of her own, or at least learn learn how to do it so that she can, uh, you know, kind of rekindle her relationship with her son and that had been kind of, uh, uh, you know, a little bit uh, uh, stressed from all of her helicoptering that she was doing. I think you should get an instructor. I live in the most challenging city in the country. I can navigate a few small waves in sunny Santa Monica. That goes on your leg. Why are you still in your least favorite city in the world? I'm working on something. On what? Something. <laughs> It looks good. I like seeing Helen Hunt doing this. Um, uh, Luke Wilson pops in as as her potential love interest. Brendan Thwaites plays her son. Uh, you know, it's it uh, it doesn't look like it's going to be uh, anything that's going to blow my mind or anything. But it kind of caught my attention. I I was uh, it piqued my curiosity. What about you? Um, I you know I think every um, uh, every mother should probably see this film. <laughs> do you think <laughs> yes probably uh i loved it at its working title adjusting to the oedipus complex <laughs> oh i missed that that's fantastic <laughs> oh it's it's pretty uh I, I don't know i thought it looked really uh I, I thought it looked cute i i think um i think it's probably it's it's funny to see this movie now it's like it, it really is like watching therapy on screen a little bit and i'm right. not i'm not saying that like because um because, you know, I would never say that about my relationship with my mother. Uh, but I am saying that about uh, now that I have kids, I feel like I understand where those feelings could go. Like being the controlling parent of growing adult children, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And my kids are still very young. But I can, I can totally see how that, how that is possible. And I think it's an interesting kind of exploration of Helen Hunt to go and put this on screen. And I, I think it'll be, um, it'll be interesting to see how this hits. It looks like a, an interesting character kind of comedy. It, it could turn into one of those quirky films that ends up working. It could be something that kind of disappears and, and uh, just uh, nobody hears of again. But I don't know. I, I'm interested to see it. I am too. Did you say when it comes out? Um, it, it doesn't actually have a release date yet. The trailer is just getting out there. It played at uh, the American Film Market last fall. And it looks like it's uh, they're kind of pushing, trying to find its release date sometime, hmm. I'm guessing, later this year. Uh, my trailer, jeez, um, Andy, what's happening to me, really? I feel, <laughs> I feel like we've stooped so low. Like we've done trailers. We've done trailers about the big reboots. We've done the big budget trailers, the adaptations. 
We've we've even done uh, Van Damme and Kidney Thievery trailer. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- the things we do in this segment might make people think we have little critical taste in movies at all. <laughs> and tonight, I feel like I've got to add another nail to that coffin by bringing to you a trailer released this week starring none other than Adam Sandler and Kevin James. Let us all, oh, have, a, let, let us all have a moment of silence. <laughs> Some alien life force has sent real-life video games to attack us. Pac-Man's a bad guy? Donkey Kong. It's just a barrel! How bad can it hurt? The film, of course, is Pixels from director Chris Columbus and writers Timothy Dowling and Tim Herlihy. And it tells a story of an alien menace that takes the form of giant 1980s video game characters, Pac-Man, Space Invaders, Frogger, Donkey Kong, all all make their menacing city-leveling appearance alongside, uh, of course, Adam Sandler and Kevin James and and Josh Gad and Peter Dinklage and Michelle Monaghan and Brian Cox and Sean Bean as a general, Kel Surprise. I love that uh, Kevin James actually is playing the president. Yes, I know, right? <laughs> With Jane really? Krakowski as his wife. <laughs> that says everything you need to know, really. Exactly. Well, here's the thing. I mean, Chris Columbus, has he's got some wins and you know some losses in my book, but I got to admit, I am looking past a lot of my own inner apprehension on this one because, <laughs> frankly, they are rebooting my childhood brain here, bringing to life not only four hours of every Saturday morning at the arcade next to the porn store with my friend from the ages of 8 to 12, but of my nightmares. I <laughs> This looks really fun for my inner child and i'm gonna suck it up pixels is due to hit theaters july 24th 2015 so what did you think is it is this the sandler film you're gonna see in the theater you know i don't think so (gasps) i i I kind of want to but at the same time because i mean honestly i would see it just because peter dinklage like his look looks straight out of uh king of kong yeah Yep. You no, know, he he totally has that look, which I think is fantastic. Um, you know, Adam Sandler. You know, I have such a hard time with Adam Sandler, and it. I, I and Chris Columbus. I really have a really hard time with Chris Columbus, and that's what makes me most hesitant about the film. I think almost even more than Adam Sandler is the fact that Chris Columbus is helming it. I just, uh, it, it makes me nervous that it's just going to, you know, be something that when it rolls around, it's going to get 16% on Rotten Tomatoes. Not that I necessarily judge by that, but, you know, when everybody's just telling me how much garbage it is, it, it, it's a sure sign that I should just skip yeah. it. I will say, I really, really enjoyed the uh, that short film that, um, I can't remember who made it. Was it Patrick Jean? Was yeah, that the, that, the original, that was what, 2010, yeah. I think, Pixels. Right, Center. right. I, I really enjoyed watching that. I thought that was so fascinating. And it excites me that they actually you know, decided to, hey, let's take this interesting short of these giant video game things floating around in the city and actually make a film out of it. I'm curious to see what they do with it. I'm curious to see if it's something that works. I'm sure it's something that I probably would rent down the road. I just don't know if I'm going to give them money at the theater. Yeah. Yeah, am I being a bully? A little bit you're being a bully, but I'll tell you, I think you're probably right. I think this is one of those where, you know, we we may have had enough of pixels from the short, and maybe a feature is is just too much pixels. Yeah. So, anyway, um, there you go. So, July 24th, 2015. That's, uh, I think that's it. 
Oh, hey, Pete. Yeah? That's one honey of an anklet you're wearing. I killed Dietrichson. Me, Walter Neff, insurance agent, 35 years old, unmarried, no visible scars. Until a while ago, that is. Yeah, I killed him. I killed him for money and for a woman. It all began last May. I was thinking about that dame upstairs and the way she had looked at me. And I wanted to see her again, close, without that silly staircase between us. How could I have known that murder can sometimes smell like honeysuckle? I can't stand it anymore. What if they do hang me? They're not going to hang you, baby. It's better than going on this way. They're not going to hang you. Because you're going to do it and I'm going to help you. Yes, from the moment they met, it was murder. Always behind them with his devilish hunches and his brilliant brain was Keyes. The murder's never perfect. Always comes apart sooner or later. And where two people are concerned, it's usually sooner. Could they get away from him and his relentless pursuit? And could they get away with murder? Here we are, Andy. Uh, 1944, Double Indemnity, directed by Billy Wilder, written by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler. Wow. Quite a pairing. Quite a pairing, uh, based on the book of the same name by James M. Kane. Uh, stars Fred McMurray, uh, Barbara Stanwyck, Babs, and Edward <laughs> Edward G. Robinson, among other but the others. Though that's the trio that brings this uh, film noir classic to life. What'd you think? Oh, this has just been one of my favorites forever. Forever. It's just forever. Forever. This is film noir. You're gonna. I'm. I'm. I think we're in agreement. Where there's no. This is it. This is. This is. This is it. Everybody sucks in this movie. There is nobody that doesn't <laughs> suck at life. Everybody loses in this movie. Well, Edward G. Robinson at least is. You know, he's. A, he's a, he comes out ahead. I mean, not ahead, but you know, he's the good guy. Yeah, in this yeah. One. I guess you could say that. That's fair. It's. This is. You know, by many people called the first film noir. I, I can't remember exactly. I know we talked about film noir a few times, like in The Maltese Falcon. Um, the Maltese Falcon, by many people, is kind of considered like the birth of the a lot of the noirish elements. Um, but a lot of people specifically say that Double Indemnity is really the first film noir. It's the first one that really has all the tropes. It's got the femme fatale. It's got the, uh, the, the witty banter. It's got the, the fantastic uh, cinematography and that dark, moody lighting. It's got the, uh, the, uh, the voiceover. It's got the, the poor schlub who just can't say no and gets himself into a pickle with this femme fatale. It's really kind of got all of the, the tropes that became so standard for film noir after this point. And at the time, Billy Wilder, you know, didn't even know he was making a film noir. As far as he knew, he was just making a crime thriller. Yeah, it, yeah. And it ends up being uh, something that defines the genre. Exactly. Uh, you know, for me, the the simplicity of of the film, I think, is really uh, it's quite refreshing. Um, I love that it is a film based on uh, insurance fraud from 1944. Uh, you know, <laughs> will we never learn? Uh, right. Uh, I think it's just brilliant. Fred McMurray uh, as uh, uh, Walter. Neff, Walter Neff. Uh, Fred McMurray. Uh, what do we? Uh, Fred McMurray was you know my three sons, right? 
Yeah, this was really a big change for Fred because at the time he had been doing a lot of uh, light comedies and he was known in those circles as somebody who did comedies. And and the way that the story goes, Billy Wilder had kind of, I mean, this was at a time, remember, when the Hayes Code was in effect. And this was not a story that people really looked favorably upon. In fact, James M. Cain also had written The Postman Always Rings Twice. When he had written that, the Hayes Code pretty much put the kibosh on it. I mean, all the studios were interested in making that as soon as he wrote that. And this was, uh, you know, like six years earlier or so. And uh, but then they it, it killed the chances of that movie getting made. And so uh, he went to write another book and he wrote The Double Indemnity as kind of a, a, a serialized novel or novella, really. And it really kind of... Um, Again, it, it's something that people were interested in, but because of the Hayes Code, they were a little hesitant to jump on board with. Billy Wilder and uh, his producer on this um, kind of, uh, they, uh, I think his producer, Joe Sistrom, actually found the book and brought it to Billy's attention, and Billy was right away interested. Then it was the trick of how do you adapt this to actually get past the Hayes Code. That was the next big thing. And so, you know, with with uh, Chandler's help, um, they they ended up working it in a way. I mean, I, at the time, it looks it sounded like you really had to go back and forth with the Hayes Code. Like the uh, the original book, the two lovers. Um, end up killing themselves. They end up on a boat going to Mexico, and they both jump overboard and commit suicide. That was out of the question. The Hayes Code wouldn't let people commit suicide. You couldn't well, show the murder on the screen. We gotta, we gotta, t- we gotta take a step back. I, I imagine there are people. We've talked about the Hayes Code before, but it's been a while. So for those who haven't listened to all the show, what is the Hayes Code? Well, the Hayes Code is uh, something that uh, originated in Hollywood because at the time in the when it was like in the twenties, yeah, it was like the twenties, yeah, yeah, late twenties through the late sixties, yeah, yeah. It 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 really was. Uh, they felt that there was some um, uh, under the motion picture production code that Will Hayes he felt that there was uh, just a lot of unacceptable material, unacceptable content in films. And if you look at some of the films in the twenties, I mean, they were getting away with a lot more, a lot more uh, lascivious stuff mm-hmm. and just, I mean, some interesting stuff. Morally and, objectionable. Yes. And so they created this code that the films had to essentially live by. And, uh, you know, some, they, they might've been a little too strict, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, uh, talk about you know the 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 way that the code played out, but what it it did is it allowed these filmmakers to end up being really creative in the ways that they would um, use um, symbolism and stuff to to hint at things like Alfred Hitchcock and the famous shot of you know the the couple in the in the uh, in the bed, and then you see the train going through the tunnel, letting us know okay they're they're going mm-hmm. at it mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Like people would find ways, and that's where a lot of this exciting dialogue ended up coming from because instead of just talking about um, doing something, they would talk around it, and it ended up creating much more interesting uh, dialogue and much more interesting scenes a lot in a lot of cases. So. Uh, but anyway, the code ended up getting replaced uh, years later by the uh, the actual rating system, and it, it created something that actually allowed for different ages. And I think it, you know, it, granted the MPAA and their rating system still has uh, a lot of problems, but uh, I think it's better than it was under the Hayes Code. 
Probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. In any case, they get away with a lot uh, in this film through not terribly subtle dialogue, but they do get away with more in this film. This, these exchanges between Walter Neff and Phyllis early on are uh, are are particularly um, particularly uh, steeped in sexuality, homosexuality, sort of homoerotic tendencies uh, or, or illusions, and uh, it's it's really fun to watch them kind of go at each other verbally like this. Yeah, it's it was fantastic, and oh, and so uh, the, what I was saying was, yeah. so they created, so they wrote this script, but then they couldn't get people to act in it because people were like, kind of, a little put off by the uh, the tone of the script. They felt like these these types of James M. Kane novels, uh, that whole kind of pulpy novel that was coming out, were just trashy novels that that you know people didn't want to be in those sorts of movies, and so. They looked a lot to find um, the actor, and according to Wilder, he basically asked everybody in town, um, and as he said, he, he even went to George Raft, who at the time was like one of the bottom-of-the-barrel actors who, uh, who oddly had turned down many great roles like uh, Casablanca um, and this, and um, he ended up uh, you know, finally talking to Fred McMurray and, and talking him into it. And lucky for us that he did, because you're right. I mean, Fred McMurray is mostly, well, at least as us as younger people, was known as like, you know, my three sons and, uh, you know, son of flubber. Absent-minded you know, professor. Uh, yeah, right, you know. All that sort of stuff. And it's it's so funny that this is the guy who uh, ended up taking on this role to play uh, Walter Neff. And I think it's his greatest screen role. I think that he's fantastic in this. And he's he just... Uh, is just so good playing this 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 uh, poor sap who's just you know I, I shouldn't even call him poor sap. I mean he pretty much does it to himself, but he he's too greedy and wants the woman, wants the money, and gets himself into a place where he's screwed. He does. I you know it's it's funny we talk about my three sons and son of flubber and those sorts of things, but really I mean double indemnity. He was it, it happened really at the midpoint of his career, and that's something that I I lose perspective on. I mean that's 1944. He he had been acting for you know you know 15 years by then, 15 more than 15 years by then, and and uh, um, yeah, this was this ends up being a defining role. It's funny to hear you talk about talk to him talk about him as a poor sap. I don't I don't see him as a poor sap, which is which implies to me more of a dullard, you know, somebody who's really just plain stupid. He was greedy, but I never saw him as stupid. I mean, he's the top of his, you know, they they characterize him as at the very top of his game as a salesman. He is a smooth talker, he is extremely charismatic. He is likable by, you know, everybody in his office. They like him. He's really at the top of his game. Um and that he is that he ends up succumbing to the wiles of this woman, this manipulative woman, I, I think sends, a, for me, a, a better message, or at least a more powerful message, knowing just how powerful she is in that relationship and what he has lost uh, of his own composure as he sort of falls to her prey. Yeah, and I, when I said poor sap, I mean I, I tried taking it back, but not very well because that was definitely the wrong way to describe him. He's just a, a, he's a uh, somebody who is too greedy and too. I mean, he is good at his game, but there's something in him. I mean, he has taught he when he falls for Phyllis, he actually you know he says uh, after he she kind of pitches the whole idea of killing off her husband and everything, uh, and he kind of comes around to it. He says it's something that I've thought about. 
is is how I could actually get away with this sort of thing. And he, you know, he's he really has kind of put together this plan in his head as to how you could actually get away with it. And it's it's because of her that he does. But at the same time, it's like there is something I think already inside him that was willing to try it if the right thing came along. So I think that he already had some danger in him, but it because of this this femme fatale who kind of comes into the picture and really twists him to do it that he actually does do it. Uh Barbara Stanwyck is the femme fatale. She uh she is elegant. Elegant in her evilness. She really is. Now this is her role in the story. She is the second wife of the uh, of well, of her husband. Uh, who is um, uh, Mr. Uh, Dudrickson. Uh, do we ever know his first name? I don't think so. Played by Tom Powers. Uh, and he is the... Uh, and and you know, this whole thing starts because he needs his auto insurance. Uh, he's an oil tycoon. He needs his auto insurance. Uh, uh, renewed. Renewed. And it turns out that he has lost a lot of money. Uh, and so that's that gets Phyllis's attention, uh, or at least it, it causes Phyllis to approach Walter um, very subtly with this plan. What could they do uh, to take out this insurance policy? And one that would ideally activate the double indemnity clause of their policy so that this accident that is that is so rare, it would never possibly happen. An accident on a train, well, that would pay out double the policy total. So that's that's their plan is to to kill the husband on a train and uh, make double indemnity on that policy. And she is, uh, for me, she's the real highlight of this film. I love watching her uh, manipulate all of these pieces and the way she swings uh, back and forth between, um, you know, between her husband, between uh, Walter Neff on screen, and between, you know, in the end, with, between Keyes, Edward G. Robinson's uh, insurance investigator. Um, I find her just this a yo-yo performance in the very best way. There's a couple scenes that just always stand out. I mean, I agree with you that she she plays everybody so well, but my favorite moments are one when the murder happens and she actually has Walter kill her husband and the camera holds on her face while Walter does it and it's this look of almost erotic enjoyment it's almost this this sexual thrill that she's getting from it as as her husband is basically killed in the seat next to her and you just are staring into her face that is uh, i think one of the most uh, terrifying moments oh, of, yeah. of of watching her because there's this real danger there is and you know on second viewing that's one of those moments that means so much more on second viewing of this film, right? Because, you know, first of all, it's captured beautifully. The sound is great as you hear her husband, um, you know, being killed in the seat next to her, but you can't see him. Uh, but more importantly, once the film plays out and you you realize that, you know, she is, you know, responsible for more than just his death, uh, then seeing this film again and watching that scene and watching, as you say, that sort of erotic enjoyment that she gets out of her husband being killed... Um, that it just it makes it that much more powerful. It isn't. It's really haunting. And then the other thing that uh, the other scene that really stands out for me is at the end after she's shot Walter, and then he comes up to her and they hug, 
and she has that you know confession about how she's just rotten to the core but um she knew that she loved him because all of a sudden she couldn't shoot him and everything and just that whole turn that she has there it's it just is the continuation of that uh, that um level of danger within her that you just don't know what you can ever trust with anything that comes out of her mouth because is she telling him the truth does she really love him or is she purely evil and just trying to manipulate him again so that he won't kill her and the way that she plays that i think is is so frightening it really is and and that last line you know you know i knew i i I never loved you until just a minute ago when i couldn't Mm -hmm. fire that second shot oh (laughs) ah Oh, she's just <laughs> diabolical. And then, goodbye, baby. And he shoots her twice, which, you know, he is able to commit to the second shot. Yes. Uh, killing her. Fantastic. Edward G. Robinson's character, I was going to talk about uh, Nico. Uh, Nino. Nino Zacchetti. Um, mm-hmm. he, is the, uh, he is the daughter's, Lola Dietrichson's boyfriend, uh, and it turns out that uh, he was having an affair with Phyllis Dietrichson, with the mother, mm-hmm. uh, which gets, you know, they don't invest a whole lot of time on that particular twist. He seems like a, more of a plot tool. It's an interesting twist, though. I was thinking about that this time because, I mean, he's pretty rotten himself. You oh, know? yeah. Well, he he's, not, he's this, rude. He's, he's dating uh, sweet little Lola, who, I mean... She is in the in the film the complete opposite of Phyllis, and and you know, I, I think it might be interesting to talk about that the portrayal of women at some point in our conversation here. But he is he's cheating on her with her stepmother Phyllis, which is just you know atrocious uh, in and of itself. But then you know with Phyllis, apparently he is actually um, working to kind of come up with this, or you know she's using him to kind of knock Walter off. That's the intended plan, as at least we're led to believe. And I I find it so interesting then that Walter, as as kind of despicable as he is, then essentially stops Nino and and essentially helps him escape from Phyllis's clutches so to speak so that he can actually return to Lola and i find it such a strange moment um because Nino is never portrayed as somebody that we like i mean the first time we meet him he's just rude 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 um and yet he's here, the guy who gets the girl and gets yeah, away he's the, exactly he's the guy who gets the girl he's the guy who our protagonist uh helps and it's just I don't know. I found it like such an interesting uh, decision that uh, Wilder and Chandler chose to include in the story. I don't know how much of that Zacchetti uh, subplot is included in the original novel, but it's interesting how they chose to uh, to write that in the screenplay. Did they need him in the screenplay? Did they need him as a as a plot tool, in your opinion? Well, I think that they needed him because I think it's important to portray Phyllis's, uh, you know, her betrayal of Walter at that point, how she is already with another guy and basically plotting to knock Walter off. I think that aspect of it is pretty important. Yeah, no, you're right. That's a good point. I was thinking about it just in terms of of getting away with killing uh, Mr. Dietrichson. I mean, it really is a very simple little three-person plot that they could have gotten away with this whole thing. Uh, I'm saying, you know, Chandler and Wilder could have gotten away with this whole thing without that secondary betrayal. But I think it is made better. It is made a stronger betrayal knowing that she she has already, you know, moved on to this next 
assassination. Well, and I think, you know, in a strange way, it's an interesting portrayal of Walter making a good decision at this point that as if they are trying to give us and you know for all I know this was a Hayes Code directive I mean who really knows but it feels like it's something where well we need to show the protagonist I mean he's he's been such a bad guy he's just killed this woman in cold blood we need to show him do something good at least trying to do something you know for the betterment of this situation mm-hmm. and that it it comes across as you know let's let's make our protagonist at least let's help our audience identify a little bit with the protagonist at this point yeah i can see that i can see that particularly after all of the the strange orchestrations there are there are some wonderfully tense scenes with edward g robinson's character barton keys the insurance investigator and he is he's not the character you expect from edward g robinson um he's the honest bloke yeah this was quite a change for him in fact uh, you know, speaking of all the different uh, challenges Wilder had getting these three performers to come on board, Robinson didn't want to do it because he was, uh, you know, he, he was playing second second fiddle, so to speak. I mean, he was a supporting character. He had been a lead since Little Caesar back in 1930, and he did not feel like he was, uh, you know, wanted to all of a sudden be relegated to just being a supporting character now. But yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, the script was good, the material was good, and, and Wilder was convincing, and he did. And, you know, I think for both him and McMurray, it was playing opposite type, and I think they both did a great job. I think they did, too. He was uh, he was fun. I kept wanting him to turn somehow. I kept wanting him, expecting him to go dark and go all mafia or something, and he never <laughs> never quite got there. All the way to the, to the very, very final uh, sequence as they are... Uh, as as he's kneeling down with uh, Walter Neff and lighting him a match. This is a really this is really the love story of the film. It really which I think is. is. Yeah, it's it, it does have like you said earlier, kind of that homosexual undertone that they kind of threw in here. It's a very interesting um, relationship that Neff and Keys has. Uh, I love how Neff always when when Robinson is trying to light his cigarette. Um, McMurray just does that, you know, I don't know how you do it with that, with those matches where you can just flick the top of it and lights it. It's just like one of those, those, those cool things that guys back in the forties would do with their matches. That was just so cool. And, uh, and so Neff would light the match for Robinson with his finger and light, uh, light Keyes's, uh, uh, cigarette for him. And then he would say, I love you too. It's it's a, it's an interesting relationship, and I think that there is a stronger relationship between these two guys. In fact, I think that there's such a the the scene that um, I think exemplifies that so well is when Keys comes over to Neff's apartment uh, the night when Neff is expecting uh, Phyllis to come in, and they have that great exchange. And then um, as as they're as uh, Keys is leaving. Phyllis is actually hiding behind the door, uh, at the outside of the apartment door. And there's that great shot where you have Phyllis behind the door. You've got Walter holding the door open. And then down the hall, you've got, uh, you've got Keys. And just the spatial relationship just helps you see that Neff and Keys are really much closer to each other than Neff and, and uh, Phyllis are. There's, there's, that more, there's a bigger separation between um, him and her than there is between him and Keys. 
It it is. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's one of my favorite scenes, and and uh, I think it really cements that relationship for me. That uh, the way he, that unravels, the fraud unravels for him. Um, I, I think we see him at least for the first you know three quarters of the film really not investing in anything that would implicate you know Neff. I mean, you really feel like he is he is he's doing his due diligence. He's a bloodhound. You know, he's the bulldog. Uh, but he would never see this uh, from his his colleague. He offers him a job. He wants him to come into this into this world with him, like everything he can do to kind of welcome him into the fold. Uh, that 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 becomes almost the tertiary betrayal uh, when Keyes realizes that that you know his his faith, the faith that he had in his you know protege, so to speak. Um, was ill-founded it's it really is it is heartbreaking it's it's very sad to see that uh that final um deterioration of that relationship at the end there as neff realizes keys is listening to him confess and you know comes clean and and on all of that and you can just see kind of the the bitter disappointment and sadness in keys keys's face as he goes through that whole thing and, and watches his friend die. I mean, it's, it's really, it really is quite heartbreaking that whole end, end bit. Absolutely touching. Those three really are the key. I mean, everyone else I think does their parts well, but they, uh, you know, it's dominated by Fred, Barbara and Edward. Those three people really are the driving force of this film. All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the screenplay, um, Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler. Mm. Uh, what do you uh, What do you love about how this uh, screenplay is uh, was executed? Well, I, you know, I haven't read the original material. Yeah. I I, uh, I haven't checked it out, but from my understanding of reading it, is there's a lot of there still is Kane um, elements of Kane's dialogue and and plotting and stuff in there but there's a lot of reworking because uh, i guess chandler caught on quite quickly that kane's dialogue in his book did not uh work well when somebody actually spoke it and so um they actually really had to retool the script quite a bit and uh and like i said they are they changed the ending uh due to the the hayes code they uh, they found a different way to structure the story and i mean i think this is one of the strongest um, plotted stories. I think it moves incredibly quickly. I think it's taut. I think the elements are all in place. I think that the 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 structure that they use um, just it, it it moves very quickly from sequence to sequence and from act to act as you're going from um, the investigation into the uh, or you know trying to sell the insurance to the uh, decision to move forward with it to you know the murder to uh the subplots with Lola and Nino and Keyes' investigation and you know Walter's uh growing uh fear that that he's going to get caught uh to the the resolution of the film i think it just moves so well chandler um, this was, uh, I think, one of his earliest things that he actually did, and I think that he brought a lot to it. I guess that he and Wilder had uh, were butting heads constantly on the process of getting this thing uh, written, but I think that maybe something came of that because I think that it's just a really solid, well-paced, uh, well, uh, well-structured story all the way through. You know what I like so much about it in these, and and generally films in this, um, in in the genre. These films offer characters that give you a very limited window into their lives. 
right? I mean, we get just hints of who Fred McMurray's character, Walter Neff, is outside of what we experience with him in this film. We get just hints of Barbara Stanwyck, you know, as our femme fatale. Uh, we, we get just this small window based on their very limited activities to judge them as characters on screen. And one of the things I like so much about the way this script is architected is that even given those that that limited window, it still feels like a fully fleshed out character. I'm not left wanting more uh, from how these characters are delivered, and I think that's just uh, a function of really piecing out what makes what makes the most sense as we puzzle these characters together. It's it is it's leveraging their relationship in such a way that we're not we're not focused so much on what we're missing in terms of who they are, and and that may be a characteristic of these sort of thriller films that I haven't kind of fleshed out in my head yet, but it, I really came away thinking, wow, I, I really enjoyed my experience with these characters. I didn't feel like any one of them, even uh, Edward G. Robinson, uh, I, I didn't walk away from any of these characters thinking, wow, I want more from them. I think I, it, it was just a really sound mix. I think that comes through in the dialogue and in the the characters' actions. I think that, and also I think the way that they wrote the script to include the locations, and I know this may sound weird as far as the characters go, but they actually, they, I really felt like these people lived in the environment. And I don't, I don't know if this fully makes sense yet, uh, as I'm still fleshing the thought out, but I really got a sense that these people knew where they were. They, they had a, an actual relationship with the geography in which they were uh, in all the time. Um, when he's talking to Lola about which corner to drop her off, like they were so specific about things like that. They were specific, like when he's first driving up to the address, like to give us a lot of details about that. And I know it's like um, not necessarily tied in directly to the characters themselves, um, but there's something about that that just, for me, it, it helped me feel like they were more lived in. Does that make sense? Well, what do you mean? The just because of the of the location, like I'm thinking specifically well, as he walks up to the house, you know, and he's and the voiceover is talking about how it's a thirty thousand dollar place, you know, and, and giving right. us that level of experience. Well, and like and, and like which corners, like he he you know he he tells you kind of all not really the directions as to how he got to the house, but he's like, well, it was up off of whatchamacallit Boulevard. Yeah. Like he gives you so many specifics that I just felt like. Even though I didn't have as much details about who these characters were, I really felt like they were real characters because they they just had a sense of their place. And I think that fits into these little windows that we get of each of these characters. You know, that's just one of these little pieces that we get. And and I think it leads into such a wonderful, in particular, that sequence. It leads into such a wonderful exchange between Neff and Phyllis and the the um, the just sort of double entendre that rich uh, sequences they as they flesh out their relationship together. Uh, Billy Wilder's direction, then. I think he's a smart director. I think he knows how to tell a story. Um, You know, he directed a scene that took place later in the film when we actually see Neff on death row, and we have Keyes kind of witnessing his execution. Uh, He's a smart enough director to realize as he puts the film together that he didn't really need that. You know, he he just needed that final scene between the two of them together. And that got the point across. I think that he understands the uh, the the storytelling elements. And uh, at least at this point in his career, I think he was very smart with with um, 
allowing for edge in his stories and letting it play and and using characters who really feel real. Boy, he did. I haven't seen I feel like I haven't seen that much of his stuff. Is that weird? I have I have a huge gap in his in his career. I think it all um cuz he's credited with 27 films from uh, 34 to 81. And I think that I, I've, I've seen... Uh, Sunset Boulevard, Double Indemnity, um, Seven Year Itch, Some Like It Hot. Last Weekend, uh, Ace in the Hole, Seven Year Itch, uh, Witness for the Prosecution, uh, Avanti. So, yeah, I mean, I've seen, seen... You've seen more than I have, for sure. I've seen a number of them, but I still have a huge gap in his career. And he's one of those directors who I really... I know that his career... It really kind of falls apart toward the uh, latter half into the 60s and 70s. Um, I still, I still, he's one of those directors I really want to go through just his whole body of work and check them all out because I feel like there's, there's a lot of great stuff in there. Well, from, uh, from 34 to 81, my goodness, Billy Wilder directing Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau mm-hmm. in Buddy Buddy. That's a, that is a long, uh, career, but what's so nice about it is he only has 27 credits, primary directorial credits in that period. We could, we can clear that out. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I really, uh, I, I deeply enjoyed uh, just watching the way this film works. But again, you maybe it's because we just spent so much time talking about L.A. Confidential and Million Dollar Baby, both films that have dealt with so beautifully with light. Um, you know, Million Dollar Baby in particular, which I I think uh, this is a film that that allows you to kind of see what those films are playing homage to. You know, I mean, just the the way they use uh, light and shadow and patterns and silhouettes that um, I, I think just uh, it just brings such a yet another layer of character to the screen um, and and allows us to see the characters that we are learning to you know relate to. Uh, in in an interesting new way, you know the the light tells you whether or not you should love this character, or whether or not you should fear this character, and I think this is uh, you know he plays with that really really well. Yeah, John Seitz did the uh, cinematography for this. He is a uh, just a, one of those cinematographers who had uh, been around uh, since the early days. I mean, since 1916, he was filming shorts all the way through uh, 1960. Um, got a lot of credits to his name. And worked on a number of projects with uh, with Wilder. This was a a film where, like we said, film noir hadn't even been coined yet. Uh, people weren't going, "Oh, let's make this a, a a film noir style film." This was just a film where Wilder felt that because of the crime nature of the story, he wanted to kind of have a sense of some German expressionism in it. And, you know, he's from Europe and, and he's kind of from that background. And so he brought that to the table. And that's something that uh, Seitz really brought into the forefront in making of this and brought the beautiful, the dusty atmosphere, the fantastic Venetian blinds that give you kind of this prison bar look all the time. And these, you know, the, really these dark, gloomy interiors that just almost looked rotting, uh, that contrasted with the bright exteriors, and it that became a staple of noir films. Not because um, they said let's make noir uh, look this way; it's just because they were trying to kind of create this German expressionist sort of look for this particular film. Set wise, I again think they worked well with the cinematography to uh, to create those dark, uh, just kind of 
interiors that just felt very um very moody and you know just that lent a lot to the cinematography you know the one that stands out for me uh, is is the back of the train it's the back of the carriage of the train when when neff walks out on the train you know and he's about to get off right he's about to sort of throw himself off the the train but there is somebody sitting there and uh the way the light plays off of their faces to hide neff whose back is constantly to this this um, uh, stranger and the way the stranger is so open and so well lit as we see him trying to make just friendly overtures to Neff. Uh, I think we get a sense of the compression as a result of the size and scope and use of light on the back of this train set. And I, I loved that. I thought that was just such a really beautifully intense sequence as he's trying to get rid of this friendly guy. Why, why is it with, why does this guy love <laughs> so much? Uh, I, I thought it was great. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree. Uh, who else would you like to talk about? Uh, Miklos Rosa. Oh, did music. The score yeah, the score. I think this is just one of the just all-time great uh, noir scores. It's so just haunting. It's so driving. It's got this kind of this insistent driving um, feel to it that just feels like, you know, it works well with the opening of watching the silhouette of the person walking on crutches coming slowly toward you. It just, it won't let up. And like the pace of this doesn't let up. Um, He's a composer who had, uh, you know, he had um, just started earlier in the, uh, in the late thirties. And I believe this was really kind of his first, uh, his first breakout, I think, Um, or at least his first big one that uh, really kind of got him on the map as doing something that uh, a lot of people would want to then seek him out to have him do. He ended up working more with uh, Billy Wilder and Hitchcock and uh, a lot of people after this. And just, a, you know, just a fantastic score. It is deemed culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress. Turns out uh, Congress loves tumble indemnity. It is in the yes. National Film Registry. How to do uh, in terms of uh, awards? You know, it. Uh, this was a film that uh, surprised people when it came out. It ended up getting seven Oscar nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Barbara Stanwyck, uh, Best Screenplay Writing, um, Best Cinematography, Best uh, Score, and Best Sound Recording. It lost every category. It, this was a time when when studios were behind, or when studios were you know pushing their movies, they pushed like everybody, all their employees and everybody to all vote the same way. And they would kind of do this block vote and, and Paramount, which also produced going my way. Um, in addition to double indemnity, they got behind going my way, which is kind of this, you know, I don't know. It's like a, a buddy, a buddy film with Bing Crosby and Barry Fitzgerald, where there are two singing priests, I think. And, um, I, it's one of those films. I still have yet to see it, but I haven't heard anything that, that really screams, "Hey, come watch this one!" It's it's you know the big notable film from 1944. It just uh, happened to win because Paramount got behind it and it pushed it, and th- it's just the film that ended up beating out the darker film Double Indemnity. But really, I think if you look at time as the one that really defined the better picture of the year, I think the Double Indemnity would be the one that. Uh, that would be the better film. It's another one on the list of, you know, what do you remember of the films that, uh, that won when double indemnity didn't, you yes. know? And I think we had, it's, it's funny. We just had a year like that, I think in, in some respects. So, um, yeah, it's too bad. It's too bad. I think this one certainly holds up. 
really, really well. This is a film that I think is just always going to hold up. I mean, it's, I think all the people involved did everything right when they made this film. And that doesn't, you know, that's a rare thing to happen in film. It's, it's hard to just, you have so many people, so many moving parts to get everything to just hit absolutely perfectly. I think is just such a rarity And this film. I think they did. And um, yeah, I, I think everybody needs to see this film because I, I, even if it, it's, you're not into film noir, I think this one is the one to look at because it's such a standout film. Um, even, you know, outside of noir. It really is. It was funny. You know, my wife had never seen it. We were watching it the other night in bed. And and, uh, and I, I would look over and she would be like huddling beneath the sheets, like hiding her face. I said, this isn't like gory. This, you know, what are you, there's nothing like scary. She, and this was, it happened to be the sequence when the three of them were in the hallway and, and mm. uh, Barb Stanwyck is behind the door. Uh, and it was just so intense that, that it, it, uh, exuded this, you know, incredible reaction from her. I thought that was really fascinating. This is a, it, it is a really intensely structured film. I think it's just wonderful. Interestingly, um, when Kane wrote the uh, the book um, for this, and actually Postman Always Rings Twice, he had actually based it off of a uh, an actual execution that he witnessed as a reporter of a woman named Ruth Snyder, who actually was um, found guilty of murdering her husband. Um, with like basically the same setup where she wow. convinced somebody to help her. And I didn't know this, but it's really kind of creepy. She is actually, there was a photographer at the execution. They killed her by electric chair. And a photographer had a, like a hidden camera on his ankle or something. And he actually took a picture of her while she was getting executed that ran in the uh, the front page of the New York Daily News. Ooh. It's it's kind of creepy. It's actually on Ruth Snyder's Wikipedia page. I can put that on the uh, in the show notes. But it's like, yeah, there is the photo of her getting executed. Wow, <laughs> that's awful. I know, so creepy. Oh man. So that's the one thing, and then the other fun little tidbit, which is actually a little more enjoyable, I guess one could say. Please, um, I need a palate cleanser. Yeah, the the house where uh, where the Dietrichsons lived is actually a house up in the Hollywood Hills that uh, you can go drive by. It's up on uh, on Quebec Drive, I guess. And just out of curiosity, I went to Zillow since uh, since Walter Neff is so kind to tell us that this house cost thirty thousand back at the time when you know they when these people bought it. Likely, uh, I wanted to see what this house actually went for these days. <laughs> And it's it's a four bed, three bath, three thousand seventy seven square foot home. Four point five million. And, and it's actually a lot less than I thought. Really? The the Zillow estimate for the house is one point six million. Wow, that's a lot less than I thought. Yeah, for a house in the Hollywood Hills. I mean, I guess it's not a big mansion, but still four bedroom, three bathroom? Yeah, four bed, three bath, three thousand square feet. That's a it's not a bad house. No, no, not too bad. Hollywood Hills. If you want to live in Hollywood. Hollywood. That's right. That's right. I don't know if you've seen the uh, latest trailer for San Andreas. <laughs> that might put people off. <laughs> maybe the trailer, maybe the trailer came out. <laughs> right, it keeps going down. It was $4 million, but yeah, right. because San Andreas is coming out, the price just keeps dropping. <laughs> I say we... Uh... Oh, wait, you were going to talk oh, about numbers. Yeah, I was going to talk about numbers. So this film, um, 
it's it, you know it didn't strike a chord tremendously with audiences even though they did enjoy it it wasn't something that uh, that was hugely successful at the time, although it did make money back. It cost, from what I found, about $927,000 to make, which uh, adjusted is about $12 million. So, you know, it's a decent kind of a low-budget film. It ended up making, let me find it, uh, domestically about $5 million, which is about $66 million adjusted. So all told, it did pretty well for itself. It made about $504,000 per finished minute. Not a bad run. Not bad. Not bad. Well, let's see how it does on the ranking. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you can uh, rank your favorite films with our favorite films, and you can see how they stack up. We'll just see how they stack up between us. Who knows? Maybe another grudge match. I'm ready to go. Let's do it. Double indemnity or, oh, brother, where art thou? It's totally double indemnity for me. This... This for if it were just me, this is going to get pretty close to the top five. I yeah, don't know. No, I'm, I mean, I'm, I mean, I feel like you're itching for a fight, but I'm going to say double indemnity. <laughs> I, you were hesitant. I wasn't sure. I just, you know, it exhausts me a little bit because of past rankings. When I feel like I really, I love, uh, I, I love, uh, you know, oh brother, oh brother, I do. Yeah. I hear but you. I'm, but I, you're right. I, it's, yeah, defines a genre. All right, Double Indemnity or The Outlaw Josie Wales? Uh, double Indemnity. Double Indemnity, indeed. Double Indemnity or Fight Club? Fight Club. I would do Double Indemnity on this one. Mm-hmm. How much? Am I? Uh, where where are you fight? on the teeter-totter? Are you way on the outside of the teeter-totter, or are you kind of on the inside of the teeter You're the fulcrum. I would be a two. Oh, I'm a, you know, Fight Club. For me, it's way, way up there. I jump uh, if, above, a, above an eight. Oh, yeah, it's probably a nine or ten. All right, so I'll give you a Fight Club. All right, I feel dirty doing that, but Double Indemnity or The Sting? Double Indemnity. No, double Indemnity. Double Indemnity or L.A. Confidential? Hmm. Wait, I would I, go with the original. It's going to be Double, double Indemnity, but I, I like that that pairing came up. That's yeah, I think that's great. Double Indemnity or Misery? Double indemnity. Yes, indeed. Double indemnity or the exorcist. Double indemnity. Indeed. Double. Oh, there you go. Number 23. Yeah, I hosed you on that one. You did. You did. You might have <laughs> done better playing, playing rock, paper, scissors on that one. Uh, I that know. Was, that's, you got you to know when to, when to hold them and fold them and walk away. <laughs> Uh, but I feel pretty good about that, actually. That feels like uh, a good place for it. And uh, there are a lot of good movies on our list, dang it. Andy? I know there are. I know there are. I, I would like it to be at least in the top 20, but I'm going to settle for 23. All right. I feel good about that. Where do we go from here? This is a continuation of our 2015 film noir series. We're going to uh, go to Edward Ulmer's fantastic film, Detour. Detour. You know, I haven't seen this. Oh, really? Yeah, really. This is a film, I I feel like I've seen this one possibly more than any other uh, noir film, what oddly. Do, what do I need to be on the lookout for? Uh, set, it, set it up for me. Just, this is a, another great example of all the tropes of film noir. It really highlights everything uh, perfectly. And the femme fatale in this, she is just 
she's just fantastic. I absolutely love her. There's some there's some great moments all through this. I, I don't want to spoil it too much, but uh, I just want you to enjoy it. All right. Watch the uh, watch the film, and uh, I, I'm definitely looking forward to talking it, about it with you next week. Me too. Me too. I love these first time. Uh, run. So I am very much looking to, forward to it. Uh, don't forget, uh, this weekend we're doing Insurgent, so uh, yeah, the show will be up on Sunday. That's what I'm going to commit to Sunday. I can do it by Sunday. Excellent. We're going to record on Saturday, be up on Sunday. There you go. Looking forward to it. I got to go to bed. All right. I'm going to go put my anklet back on. star ouch it was written in 2000 uh so 15 years ago this is straight opinion no summary here just because a film is from 1944 doesn't mean that the acting has to be stiff or the director has to make his actors aspire to be in a soap opera please Citizen Kane and the Maltese Falcon were made three years before this film and yet D.I. can't produce a truly believable dramatic moment it's hard to believe that Wilder could direct both this and Some Like It Hot. Excellent characters, hilarious dialogue, and even though men were dressing as women, it was believable. Billy, if you stuck to comedy and Stallone stuck to killing, Hollywood be, would be a better place. Fred McMurray reaches with every line. It's so sad when a drip can't even play an insurance salesman. And the chemistry between Stanwyck and him is oil and water. I beg of you, spend your money on something that will entertain you for two hours, not this predictable, unbelievable, uninspired wannabe thriller. Yeesh. Ouch. Yeah. I like that they brought Stallone into it. I know. I like that one. And I like that, you know, it's believable men dressing as women. Even <laughs> though men dress as women, it was believable. What is the, I don't even know what, how to go he's, from, he's where referencing, to go from there. He's referencing, yeah. Something I mean, like it hot. Well, I, I, well, I got that. How does, <laughs> I, how does it? Really, I don't know. I'm trying to. I'm trying and to, I love that he's giving he's giving uh, Billy Wilder a uh, a bit of a prescription for <laughs> uh, for his career in the year 2000. That's fantastic. Two, two years before he passes. That's sad. Well, mine is short. It's a little short. Three star from somebody who I just don't think really understands film noir maybe <laughs> ben kaufman says i know it's a classic but i just couldn't get into the story maybe because the movie doesn't really have a hero the story is about two people stuck in an affair and murdering their way out of it not my kind of movie did they yep. did he see the the same double indemnity <laughs> i don't know what he saw that was not the, that was not the one i saw no, I don't think so. I don't think so. But uh, clearly, Ben just has a different way of looking at noir. I still gave it three stars, oddly. Yeah. Huh. Well, yeah. there you go. I'll there take you it. Go. Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022... We switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. 
and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.